We are in Titus chapter 3 this morning, and we've been four weeks into the book of, uh, well, chapter 2 of Titus, chapter 2 and 3, it's page 999 if you're using the supplied Bible in front of you. And there's just a few verses that we have to cover. There's a lot in these verses. And I wonder if, as you're turning, as you're finding your place there, I'm going to read our text, but I'm wondering if we could do something. I know it's inconvenient. I know you're comfortable. I'm wondering if we could stand. I think sometimes it's a good reminder that when we read Scripture, we are in the presence of our King. This is the Word of the Lord. This is our King speaking to us. This is our dad speaking to us. And I want to read here Titus chapter 3 verses 8 through 11, just a few verses as our Lord speaks to us. Here's what he says. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let's go to our king in prayer once again. Father, I, I wish it was always true that I am resting in Jesus. I, I wish it was always true that uh, I, I delight in, in you at all times, that I delight in coming to your word uh, each and every day, that I delight it even coming here and gathering. And oftentimes, that is true, but, but many times, because of my own pride, because of my own plans and selfishness, Father, that delight and joy is not there. I don't believe that I'm the only one that at times feels that way. And so help us as we, as we have been singing about your grace, about the power of the cross, to remember that as your people, we stand here before you forgiven, redeemed, set apart as your people. Father, and we're to be passionate and zealous for good works. Lord, whether we feel it or not, would you help us to walk in holiness and righteousness, Lord, and flood our hearts and our minds with, with that passion and feeling to honor you, to love you the way that we ought to. As we come to your word, Lord, remembering that it's your word, it's your spirit that is at work in us. Help us to see beyond uh, words and doctrinal truth and to, to see, see you, to know you more as we come to your word. 
to know our own hearts and to know that, that we are met uh, with grace, with love, with mercy because of the work of your son Jesus on the cross. Lord, strengthen me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I was thinking about how to uh, wrap up my time in Titus as Adam will be concluding our series next week. And um, there, there's kind of a, a theme here in these verses um, the, about the trustworthy message of the gospel. I got to thinking about in our world, there's not a whole lot of things that are trustworthy. I mean, uh, contractors, it's hard to find a trustworthy contractor. Salesmen, of course, especially car salesmen. No, nothing against, but we, they have that reputation. Lawyers, right? Uh, authors, things that we read, is this really true? News anchors, are they telling us the truth? Uh, pastors, uh, is this pastor speaking truth? Is this church leading its people in truth? And if you're like me, as you're making a decision, we just had this uh, kind of, uh, hey, should we try to get away this summer? This is super last minute. And about a month ago, we start looking for some different options to maybe get away for a week. And uh, I'm a, I'm a Airbnb, VRBO dot com guy, go online, find these rental places, and uh, nothing was within our price range that was coming up, and so I finally found this one place in Ocean City, New Jersey. I said, this looks pretty reasonable, but then you start thinking, is this a scam? Is this like, uh, is this real? And then it says, we don't take online booking, which gives you that sort of that payment protection, you know, that we're so accustomed to, and uh, and I said, I don't know. Well, I started emailing the lady back and forth. And uh, I said, I am, I'm really hesitant to send a check. I know that's the way people used to do it, but to send a check off into the mail and not know if it's, I'm, we're going to have a place when we get there. So she sends me the address of where to send the check to. And I do what probably, I don't know, I'm thinking probably most people, but my mind thinks differently than others sometimes. And I start going online and I'm looking up, white pages? Does this name match this address? I'm looking at the county website to see if that's who the house is registered under, and I'm not sending it to some different address. And then I finally say, can you just call me on the phone so we can talk? And um, she told enough stories that I thought, I don't think this is a scam. I think she can be trusted. We'll find out at the end of June if we have a place to stay. But that's the daily life in the world that we live in. We're looking for something to trust in. We're looking for something to hope in. Over the last four weeks, we've been talking about Christian living, specifically Christian living that aligns with the gospel. And I think sort of an underlying question is, is this gospel trustworthy that we're seeking to live by, that we're aligning our life with? And the good news this morning is that we have a trustworthy message in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church, we strive as members to uphold the gospel, to preach the gospel, to live it out. Right? Our church mission, we've, I've mentioned this before, to live, love, and proclaim the gospel. This is what we want to be emphasizing. This has been the theme of our pursuit of purity in Titus. Right? Our theme will be behind me. A pure church 
is a church of gospel-engaged individuals. A pure church is a church of gospel-engaged individuals. So the story of redemption through Jesus is for all of us, each and every person sitting here, and it's for all of life. Whether you're 80 or whether you're 8, whether you've been saved for 50 years or not at all, we're still going back to the message of the gospel. So we're applying it to our relationships within our home, with our relationships with one another, and with our relationships in this world. This morning, kind of the the main statement that I would like to get across is that we are to insist with confidence on promoting and protecting the gospel. We're, We're to insist with confidence on promoting and protecting the gospel. Those will be our two points this morning. You see one on the board, to promote the gospel. So let's just jump in. Um, Verse number eight, we just read this. But this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. I want you to insist on this trustworthy saying of the message of the gospel so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So why this message? Why would we promote the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, eternal life with God only comes through one man, Jesus. It only comes through one message, the gospel. This is a life-giving message. It's the only message of hope that we have, right? There's no, there's no truth anywhere else. I hope this morning that you came to find truth, the truth of God as he's revealed himself in the scripture. But apart from the gospel, there is only everlasting destruction. There is only eternal judgment. So Paul says, I want you to insist on this instruction. That is, to be confidently asserting this message, to be consistently affirming it. So we have confidence in promoting the gospel throughout the life of the body because it is a trustworthy message. It's credible. It, it yields belief. We can believe it, which goes back to chapter 1 and verse number 2, which we covered a couple months ago, talking about the God who never lies. We have a God who is trustworthy. In the book of Titus, the gospel has been described in different ways. It's been described as truth, as sound doctrine, as the trustworthy word, as the doctrine of God. In verses 3 to 7, immediately preceding verse number 8 here in chapter 3, the gospel is explained as the sovereign work, right, of a merciful God. We talked about God's mercy. Uh, We talked about the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is what brings about God's saving work in our own lives. We talked about the work of Jesus Christ, which, is accom- which accomplishes our redemption, his work on the cross. So it's a message that justifies, sanctifies, glorifies. It's the message we need for all of life. So all of our Christian life is wrapped up in this good news of Jesus. Everything. We don't get away from it. We only move deeper into it. So you're sitting here today at many different stages of life. I mean, I can't possibly take the time and apply this text specifically to your situation. 
Because you're at all different stages in life with many different backgrounds, many different burdens, many different blessings in your life. And yet here is this universal reality that each and every one of us need the gospel. And we need it every day. Life is found in Christ. Joy is found in what he has done for us. Rest is found as we ponder the depths of his love, his amazing grace that he's given to us. This is why you hear it every day as we gather. We don't just have pep talks up here. We don't just say, hey, what can, what can make you feel good as you go out the door? Particularly about yourself. We want you to feel good in the cross of Christ. So Christian living is filtered through this gospel lens. It's not just moral behavior, it's gospel living. We don't need another ne- a message. We need to simply be faithful in promoting this message in all of life. So what is it that we're promoting? We, we talk about we're promoting the gospel. Hopefully you have a fairly good grasp on what that is, but, but let me uh, expound on this a little bit more. First of all, we promote Christ alone. We promote Christ alone. Acts 4.12 says this, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We promote Jesus Christ alone. Why Jesus? Because salvation must come from someone who's not under the penalty of sin. We are under the penalty of sin. We are under God's wrath. Salvation then must come from someone who's not under that penalty. Someone that is completely pure, completely righteous. And every one of us is sinful. We are rebels to God. We've been learning this this, uh, catechism definition as a family. What is sin? And the first part of that definition says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. So it's not just merely not doing something he says or doing something he says not to do. You can live a great life and ignore and reject God in the very world that he created. We are rebels by nature to God. We want to run our own life. But Jesus is different. While Jesus was human like us, he was also God. Jesus took on humanness in order that he would become like us so he could be a sacrifice for our sin. We needed a substitute. We needed someone to take our death. Jesus lived a perfectly human life. He was undeserving of death, but he willingly gives himself on the cross. He dies in our place, only to do what three days later? Rise again. And by rising again, conquering death, giving victory over sin, so that all who would trust in him would now have hope of life eternal. Life beyond what we're given here. Jesus is the only one that can reconcile us to a holy God. So we promote Christ alone. Secondly, we promote As we're thinking about the promotion of the gospel, the proclamation of it, we promote grace alone. We've talked at great length two weeks ago about a grace-filled life, but it's worth mentioning again that we are undeserving of God's love and mercy. 
We are undeserving of God's uh, sa- salvation through the cross of Jesus. We're undeserving of Jesus' sacrifice. We have this uh, tomorrow, Memorial Day. Memorial Day honoring those that have died protecting their family, their friends, their country. And we're, we're thankful this morning if you served in our military. We're thankful that if, for, for the sacrifice if you've lost a loved one in service for our country. But think about it. Those that have died in the United States military fighting to protect their country and their friends and their, and their freedoms, they gave their life for their allies. Jesus gave his life for his enemies. Jesus gave his life for those who wanted nothing to do with him, willfully rejecting him, we deserve to die. But then as we talked about in chapter 2, verse 11, but the glorious grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8, which was read earlier, tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve to be forgiven. So we promote grace alone. God is a gracious God. Number three, we promote Faith alone. We promote Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. And so the gospel message announces this. You can't save yourself. You can't do it. We are naturally dispositioned against God, unable to perform any righteousness, unable to make godly choices. But as, that, as the Holy Spirit brings about conviction of sin, we talked about that, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, as he begins to work in our life and open our eyes to see that we need a Savior, that we need someone to be our sacrifice and our substitutes. We come to Jesus then with empty hands. Remember that old, old hymn, Rock of Ages? One of those phrases says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to... The cross I cling. I don't have anything to bring. I can't earn salvation. I can't earn eternal life. I can't buy it. It's total and complete dependence and trust in Jesus. Faith. It's the belief that Jesus died in my place. He suffered the wrath that I deserve. He took, he took all of my sin and he made me right with God and he rose again. And now I have eternal life. We talk about those facts often, but we promote faith, true heart belief, not just believing it up here in our minds. Yeah, I I know that's true, but I, I, I live differently. We're talking about a faith that's transforming us. Can I ask you this morning? Nobody knows your heart, but who are you trusting in this morning? As you sit in this room as you sit in that chair your person the person next to you your your own children your own spouse they don't know your heart but god knows your heart who are you trusting in this morning either you're trusting in jesus or you're trusting in yourself fourthly we promote the glory of god alone 
If I could say it another way, we promote a fruitful life of good works. We promote promote a life that is to be lived to the glory of God, not ourselves, right? This is what we've been talking about uh, in the the realm of Christian living. So the gospel is more than just words on paper. It's not, here's a statement of faith. Do you believe this? Yes, great. Live however you would like. It's not a stale, stagnant doctrine. It's a transformational message. By grace, we understand our sinfulness, and we understand our need for a Savior, that our only Savior is Jesus, and we come in humble repentance by faith, trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So we've been miraculously saved. We've been adopted into the family of God. My identity changes, right? I'm not Dennis anymore. I mean, on the outward I am, but spiritually I am in Christ. If you, by faith, have trusted Jesus, you are in Christ, right? The old man is dead every day. John admonishes us to die daily. And I am now seen as a perfect son of God. Does that just not leave you in astonishment? That we are seen as perfect sons of God? Nothing I do, good or bad, makes me any less a child of God, makes me any less loved by God. And so now it's in this reality of the gospel message that I am to be zealous for good works right? The gospel is producing good works in the life of a believer. So we're not self-producing good works, right? We can, we can self-produce moralism, but we cannot self-produce good works flowing from a heart that has been transformed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So gospel faith is a prerequisite for good works before God and men. Like if we've never been changed by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith, we can never live to the glory of God. And this is the whole point that Paul says and admonishes us in verse number 8. Listen, I want you to insist on this trustworthy message of the gospel so that those who have believed in God can live to the glory of God alone, that they may be careful, devoted, to good works. Why? Because gospel works are excellent and profitable. They're beautiful. They're attractive. They're beneficial for all those who who receive, are the recipients of those good works in our lives and for our own lives as self. So as a church, we are pointing each other back to the cross. We're pointing each other back to Jesus Christ. And Paul says, insist on promoting this gospel, this message of Jesus, so that we will live in good works, that the good works will follow. follow. So this should be true in our sermons, right? In our prayers, we should be promoting this message, our children's and teens' classes, our ABF times, our WANA programs, our Mom Connects, our one-on-one conversations. We're all with this single goal of promoting the gospel in the lives of each other. 
And I think as a church, we need to stop sometimes and ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves as individuals, how are we promoting the message of the gospel? How are we speaking this truth into the lives of those around us? Where are you encouraging and helping others apply this reality in the weekly struggles of life? Let's be consistent across the board in our promotion of the gospel, in all of our ministries, in our conversations. This doesn't mean that every every conversation I have has to be this, you know, spiritual grand conversation. But if we're not promoting this message to one another, you know, we're not doing what we're called to do, encouraging one another to good works. We need to be promoting the gospel. It's a trustworthy message. But secondly, we need to be remind, reminded of this as well. The second point, not only promoting the gospel, but we need to be protecting the gospel. Now, the gospel in and of itself is protected by God. It's the message that has been from, from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation. It's a story of redemption. You know, God will see his plan and purpose carried out. But as a church, we need to do as the Lord would direct what we, what we can to protect the gospel within this local body and as we present it to this community so in verse number 9, we have this negative contrast from verse number 8. So verse 8, be careful to do these things. They're excellent and profitable to be, to be encouraging one another to good works. Verse number 9, but you are now to avoid, right? It's a command to avoid, to keep away from, to go around, to go out of the way. You're to avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. I found a helpful uh, quote from Daniel Aiken, and he writes this to help us sort of understand what Paul is uh, telling us to avoid. He says, in this context, the troublemakers uh, were Judaizers, Jewish people, Jewish um, religious people, uh, who added both to the words of Scripture and to the work of our Savior. They debated theological minutia, created fanciful allegories and mythologies based on biblical genealogies, and added works to the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, verse number 9, Paul's saying, look, avoid these things that really matter very little and in fact, are unprofitable and worth, worthless. A preoccupation with these things is useless, it's fruitless, it's aimless. What's the point? Okay? We surround ourselves in our conversations sometimes with things that really, they're not pushing us to good works. They're not pushing us to move deeper into Christ. They really are fruitless and useless. Whereas a focus on the gospel has at its aim a virtuous, disciple-making, grace-filled, evangelistic life, a preoccupations with all of these things are simply not profitable. They have no aim. So our conversations with one another matter. 
again, along the same line of some of the questions that I've asked, but do you build up others in Christ with your words? Or is much of what you talk about unprofitable? Worthless, in the sense that it doesn't promote sound doctrine. It doesn't encourage one another in good works. So it's easy to come together on Sunday to do our Sunday thing and never consider that we are here to build up others in Christ. You're sitting here not simply to hear a a, a sermon, to sing some songs, but you're here to build up others in Christ. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, a familiar verse to some of you. It says a very similar thing. is let's, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Who do you think about when you come to gather for worship? And too often our preoccupation is with these foolish speculative controversies, right? For today, what would some of these things be? Maybe it's parenting methods, right? Schooling options. Well, you shouldn't homeschool or you shouldn't go to public school or you shouldn't do these things and we get wrapped up into that, right? What our kids eat and drink. You know, how they play, some of our parenting methods. We can be very critical towards other people. Our musical styles get wrapped up in leadership criticism. I wouldn't do it like that. And we have to feel like we have to share it with other people so we can kind of affirm, am I thinking about this right? We just become critical of leadership. Right, end times details, trying to figure out all the all the minutia of you know what's gonna happen. It's not it's not even the point. The point is just be ready. How about politics? There's a constant controversy, even within the life of the church. And I get it. There's imp- some important implications for our country, but we aren't a Republican or a Democratic church. We're, we're not pushing people to follow any sort of man-made or man-centered philosophies. We are pointing people to be disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what matters. There are people who will seek out these controversies. And the idea of verses 9 and 10 is that they're brought up with no real resolution in mind, oftentimes with a very uh, hostile sort of, uh, of, of approach, we're just brought up to bring up controversy because we like to debate or we like to find people that are like us so that we can you know, feel like we're on the right path with some of these things that really don't matter. But Paul already addresses at the end of chapter 1 who these people are. They're false teachers. And we're, and we're told in chapter 1, verses 11, that they must be silent. Verse 13 of chapter 1, that they need to be rebuked. 
Uh, Nate read for us earlier from first, uh, 2 Timothy 6, or 1 Timothy 6, sorry. Uh, Paul is dealing with this in Ephesus. So this is not just a, a Crete problem. It's a problem that Paul is dealing with these false teachers that are stirring up these controversies, these things that really don't matter here in Ephesus. And it's a problem in the church today. It's a problem in this church today. Which is why God brings up and institutes, puts in certain protections within each local body. I want to talk about two protections this morning. One, uh, Adam has already talked about at great length, so I'm just going to mention it. Uh, But the protection of the gospel is important enough that within the local church, God has, has built in certain protections for the health of the sheep, for the body of Christ, for the protection of the message of the gospel. The first protection is the protection of elders, right? Elders in chapter 1 verse 9 are to hold fast to this same trustworthy word, yet the same language. They're to instruct in sound doctrine. They're to guard against error, right? This uh, elders are to uh, uh, be many, to be, there's a plurality here, and I think that's extremely vital with what we're going to talk about next. So we have multiple elders keeping favoritism and personal conflicts in check, keeping other issues from ke- creeping in to the membership of the church from a, from a top-down, heavy-handed approach. Uh, turn maybe a page or two back in your Bible, depending on the way your Bible's laid out, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I just want to read a few verses because this is uh, something that Paul admonishes Timothy to do the same. Timothy and Titus, very similar focus in Paul's writing. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So it's not this like belligerent pastor that, that, that doesn't even, uh, you know, really communicate, but just has a heavy hand, but it's gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's always the approach. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, to do his will. So Paul is very clear to Timothy, look, here's how the elders and the pastors are supposed to be uh, dealing with some of this false teaching that's happening. It's, it's correcting, it's gentle with the idea that, that perhaps that person would come back around to believe the truth of the gospel and to understand that it would change their life. And so God has given each local church uh, shepherds to care for the sheep. They're to be protectors of the gospel message. And while the elders are the, are, are the primary protectors in taking the lead of protecting the body, we, we have to enlarge that because God's overall design of the local church, it's for its very own protection. And here's where I'm going with this. Not only do we have the protection of the elders, but we have the protection as a local church of membership. The protection of membership Each local church is organized. It's a gathering of committed believers who covenant together under the message of the gospel. This is the message that we want to promote. We agree on this. Okay? 
We're, we're pursuing the same thing. There's this covenant language and idea. A covenant is an affirmation for, the, for our church covenant of what we believe as a church, but it also brings accountability for how we're living it out. So if we've read it, we read it uh, like at our members' meetings and occasionally at other times, but if you go back and reread through the church covenant, it's not just here's what we believe, but here's how we're going to live in light of that belief. And so now we're accountable to one another in a, in a, in a covenant agreement, a covenant membership. So covenant membership provides protection for the purity of the gospel and the souls of the sheep. Here at CBC, not just anyone can join. This would be unhealthy for the local body. It would be unhealthy for the sheep here. So you say, well, who can join? Well, it goes back to our theme, gospel-engaged individuals. Individuals that say, in a very basic sense, I believe this gospel of Jesus Christ and I'm striving to live for it. To walk in its truth. So we, we, we unite with one another, committing to holding one another accountable to gospel living. And this is for the benefit of your own soul. Say, so why do we practice covenant membership? Really, it's for the benefit of your own soul. That you have people in your life that care enough about you to ask more uh, ask you more about your job and your summer plans, but how are you doing in your life? What are you struggling with? How can I be praying for you? People willing to take out the time to, to call out sinful patterns in your life. Hey, I'm noticing something here. I'm noticing a pattern in your life that's unhealthy. What's going on? The gospel is our only hope. You should want this protection. You should you should actively seek it out. This should be, hey, I, I want people to be speaking into my life. So church membership is not a matter of exclusion. It's a matter of protection. It's not like, hey, we just want to exclude certain people. But it's actually, we want to be protecting the sheep as, a, as local leadership. We want to be protecting and promoting the message of the gospel in, in a pure form. So the gospel is important enough and Christ's sheep are, are, are important enough that God actually designs built-in protection for this very reason through elders, through membership. So as a church, we take seriously who come, people that would come into this local body and join. That's, we take that seriously. You go through uh, you go through a, a membership class, Discover CBC, to learn more about the church. And then you sit down and we learn more about you and your profession of faith and your life as you're living it. Why? Because having a serious approach to this allows us to guard against, not perfectly, but to guard against sinful divisions that Paul is bringing up in verses 9 and 10 and 11. You say, well, that's great, but what if the sinful divisions are coming from someone within the body? This is what Paul deals with in verse number 10. As for the person who stirs up division, there's an assumption here that, that this person is already 
within the midst of this body in Crete, already part of, of the membership. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So if genuine Christianity is, is fruitful faith in Jesus, and membership is this covenant relationship that is entered into by genuine Christians, then naturally it only follows that church discipline is a healthy part of church life. So we, we have this protection that God has designed for membership. But then what if the division comes from someone within? And we tend to have a very negative idea about discipline or what we might call excommunication. And it is a very sobering doctrine of the church. But it is for the good of both the individual being disciplined and it's good for the local body. What Paul is giving here as a pattern in verse number 10 is exactly in line with the, the, the pattern that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. So it's not just, Paul's not this rogue uh, uh, apostle that's writing certain things that, that Jesus wouldn't align with because, right, sometimes we think Jesus is just, you know, always accepting of everyone and, and, and he wouldn't agree with this. But in reality, Jesus admonishes us the very same thing in Matthew 18. And it's a pattern of hope. It's a pattern of restoration. So it's, it's, it's not heavy-handedness. It's not cold proceduralism. I don't know if that's a word. But it's not just this cold procedure like we just got to get this person out of here because, uh, because of the problems they're causing. It's actually a pattern of hope. So you warn the person once. Why would you warn them? With the hope that they'll listen. Paul understands that the gospel is a message of hope that can change and transform a life. And if there's someone that's living a life of sin, a pattern of sin, warn them so that they will listen. But what if they don't listen? Paul says, warn them again. But then what if they don't listen again? And this is where it does get tough. Have nothing to do with them. If they still do not turn from their sinful error, there's a cutting off that happens. It's not just, you know, that we, uh, you know, we see somebody on the, on, the, on the sidewalk walking by and we, you know, cross the street and go around. But we don't, we, we don't entertain any more voice for this sort of controversy and division. We don't give that person a listening ear regarding these things. So local church membership is, is, in this sense, the local church is affirming evidence of salvation. So, so what, from what we can see, and we can only see the outside, we can't see the heart, what we see is that you're living a life and you're, you're expressing belief that is in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and from what we can see, we affirm that church discipline is when a person gets to the point where they start living a pattern a life of sin that doesn't change after warning after warning where as a local church and god knows the hearts but the local church says 
based on the way that you're responding, not in repentance, not in faith, we can no longer affirm from the outside your salvation. Sometimes we think that discipline comes into play for certain grotesque sins. But here, what is, what is the matter that's at hand? It's the unity of the body. And the unity of the body is just as serious to God as overt immorality. How serious? Notice the language in verse 11. This person, this type of person, is warped and sinful. Literally, they're twisted, they're turned inside out, they're living contrary, sinfully to the will of God in open, uh, open rebellion. So this is more than someone that's going through some struggles in life and, and then the church comes along with a, a two by four and just beats them down and, and kicks them out of the church, so to speak. It's not, that's not the idea here. This is a person, someone whose heart has not been changed by the gospel. There's a pattern of living that's continual and that Paul says at the very end, he is self-condemned. His sin condemns himself and in a sense, he puts himself outside of the body. It's not this, you know, we feel guilty because are we doing, but this person, this pattern of life, this person is actually putting themselves outside of the church. It's an indication that they were never really believers to begin with. I want to read one verse as we need to wrap up here. But 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, again, another author of scripture bringing in the same teaching. John says this, they went out from us talking about false teachers, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, why? That it might become plain that they all are not of us. So covenant membership and discipline is not an American church idea. It's not a recent idea. Scripture is filled with these concepts And they're there for the reason, for the purity of the gospel and the purity of the church of Jesus Christ, his sheep. So using scripture as our guide, there are certain theological boundaries which must be kept and must be protected, right? This isn't a fun topic. I'm not necessarily having fun talking about this thing because it's a hard topic to talk about. And many of us in this room have strong opinions one way or another. You might even be thinking, isn't this one of those unprofitable controversies that we're supposed to avoid? Well, what benefit is it doing? What good is it doing for the body? How is it building us up? But when we understand that Jesus, Paul in several books, John, Peter, Luke, Jude, the vast majority of our New Testament authors all use covenant membership language in their writings, it's pretty clear that this is not a foolish controversy, a useless debate. But instead, it's a crucial doctrine to the purity of the gospel, to the unity of the body. So the aim of of membership is not to create this us versus them, Christian versus non-Christian mentality, or this distinction, but really it's to recognize 
that Jesus already created an us versus them distinction. When Jesus calls people out to salvation, he's calling them out as his own possession. These are his sheep. Those people, as of yet, are not. That's not a distinction that we're making. That's a distinction that Jesus himself makes. And so we're to care for one another as his sheep, but we're to bring the good news to them that have believed. And this would be impossible if we're going to bring a compromised message of redemption in Christ. If that message gets compromised, so the gospel is worth protecting. Was a church, we must insist on faithfulness to the gospel message. We can't waver, we can't compromise on it because it's our salvation, it's our means and motivation for Christian living. So this morning, the, the admonition is to avoid controversies that are useless to your spiritual life, but instead strive to build one another up in Christ. And when necessary, we are to exercise loving discipline so that perhaps the person will, will, will repent of their sin, they will turn back to Christ, but ultimately that the gospel would be protected. Paul has given us from Titus 1 all the way through, through the end of this book much instruction as he desires to do what? Set in order what is needed for the church body to be healthy and growing. That's his whole heart. That's his whole desire. And the foundation of all of this has been the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a trustworthy message worth promoting, worth protecting. Let's close in prayer. Mm-hmm.